Hello and welcome to Scintillating Stories. In this show we read short stories by a variety of authors. Today we're reading two pieces linked by their exploration of bodily autonomy. The first piece is by Nikki Hatsidis. Nikki is a resident creator and actor for Infinite Variety Productions. She's a writer and award-nominated playwright whose work has been produced in New York, Massachusetts, California and the UK. Nikki is a contributing satirical writer for Lady Spike Media and a sketch writer and actor for Dog Show Comedy. Nikki just completed a master's degree at Goldsmiths University in dramaturg and writing for performance. A Body Taken by Nikki Hatsidis It only took the 30-minute drive back from the hospital to our apartment for my partner to decide that this was all too much for him, packing up and leaving the home we had shared for two years. Our state outlawed abortion altogether after Roe v. Wade was overturned. Under the Protection of Life Act, Plan B and home births were outlawed. Even planning an abortion was treated as an attempted murder. Women had to register their pregnancies at the hospital and then, in nine months, submit a birth certificate or face arrest. Some women chose to cross over the Canadian border for asylum, but, emboldened by lax gun laws, the free militia began to monitor points of entry. Alone in the apartment, I could no longer afford, at the beginning of a teaching career, I felt I only had one option. I had little money saved up, I would drive to the only open clinic left near me, three states and a two-day drive away. If I ate one big meal each day, I would maybe have the money for gas, a place to sleep for one night, and enough left over for the procedure. After that, I didn't know. I got in my car and started to drive west. If anyone asked, I was on vacation for the Christmas break, driving to a cabin for some well-earned rest. I couldn't trust anyone. The clinics that help women end pregnancies are all privately funded now. The one I was headed to gets booked up months in advance. When I called, I was told that I could come and wait for an opening, but it could take days, and I wouldn't be the only woman waiting. They said to look for the escorts in yellow vests. They would help me to get to the clinic lobby. They warned that there's always a mob of people outside the gate, and that they pelt women with rocks. There was a shooting last month. A doctor and four women were killed. For the most part, the journey was uneventful. And I didn't have to lie to many people. I find parking about a five-minute walk away. I'm about to turn the corner for the clinic, and I hear yelling. I pause to take a breath. A woman in a yellow vest comes up behind me and asks me if I'm heading inside. She's short, with gold hair pulled into a ponytail, about my age with a friendly voice. She holds a police shield. She tells me that because of the shooting last month, they're taking women in through the back entrance. I follow her around the building, where an ambulance is idling, and she instructs me to get in. I hesitate. She tells me that they bring women into the clinic with the ambulance because it's bulletproof. I decide to trust her. I step in. A hood is placed over my head and I am pushed to the floor when my arms are tied behind my back. 
I hear the woman say to someone, Careful, don't hurt the baby. Over the next few months, I've moved around a lot. Each time I'm brought somewhere remote, a cabin or a backyard shed. My kidnappers call themselves the Protectors. They are a highly organised group that stalk all the clinics around the country that still legally provide abortions. They have bestowed upon themselves the task of saving the unborn. They abduct women going into clinics. Sometimes they accidentally pick up women who are going in for cancer screenings. Those they give back. The others they hold until they give birth. Then they dump the women and newborns at hospitals for aftercare, and they contact the precincts in the women's states so that they can press charges. I get the sense that they have aid from the police and the free militia. My captors make me call them Sir and Ma'am. Their job is to ensure the baby inside me is born. They give me food that is healthy for baby, make sure baby gets plenty of water, that the baby is kept warm with blankets. When they address me, it's to scold me about my sins. I have to sit, pray, and ask God for forgiveness. That is my only purpose penance, and to give birth. I sit there, one leg chained to a bed or radiator, which seems arbitrary since I'm never left alone, and I watch my belly expand. The baby kicks sometimes, and I feel hatred towards it, and the body that is no longer mine. I pray to miscarry. One night I'm being moved again. The protectors have decided to stop tying up women because they've learned it causes distress for the baby. I get into the ambulance that never gets pulled over, sit and fasten my seatbelt. The protectors get a phone call and step out to take it together. It's so rare that I'm left alone, it takes me a minute to realise it's happening. My eyes adjust in the dark, and I see a medical bag they keep for emergencies. I search inside and find a scalpel. I hide it in my sleeve before they return. Ma'am gets into the back with me. I wait until Sir gets behind the wheel. Maybe the time it takes him to get back to us will make all the difference. I take a deep breath and unbuckle my seatbelt. Ma'am yells at me. She gets up and I wait until she's really close. I stab her in the neck. Sir starts shouting and runs to the back to open the door. But I'm ready for him. I shake with adrenaline as I kick him in the crotch and he backs away. 
I push past, but he grabs me. I claw and stab where I can. I start running until there's daylight. I find myself at the bottom of a long driveway. I see a car with keys in the ignition. I don't get far before there are sounds of sirens warbling in my ears and I pull over. It is the perfect day for a drive. It's spring already, warm enough to have the windows down to let a cool breeze in. Somewhere, in another universe, I will be driving with my hair flapping in the breeze and something pop-generic pulsing from the radio. In another universe, maybe I could be saved. There's a woman shouting at me from outside the window to my left. I don't look at her. Out of the corner of my eye, I can see she's holding a gun aimed at me. She's either a police officer or the free militia. Maybe they're one in the same now. She probably wants me to get out of the car. But I can't really hear her. The woman with the gun opens the door and stops dead. I wonder which part of this image she finds shocking. Is it that I'm only wearing a grey t-shirt? Is it that my legs are all cut up and scratched from running in the woods all night? Is it that I'm crying? Or maybe it's the hint of a swollen belly. Maybe it's the sum of all of those things that makes her holster her gun and adopt a gentler tone when she asks me to turn off the car's engine. Eventually, she reaches over me, cautiously, and twists the key out of place. I'm so tired. She asks me my name. Sir and ma'am didn't care what I was called. It takes me some time to think of it. She bends down closer to me and whispers some encouragement. It's okay. You're safe now. What's your name, honey? I look at her, hands firmly on the wheel of the now immobile vehicle. What do I have to lose by telling this officer my name? Even if she is the militia. I'm just so tired. Something in the roundness of her face. The softness of her gaze. Like a mother comforting a child woken by a nightmare. Makes me want to tell her everything. On an exhale, as if it were a sigh, I breathe. Esme. That was my best friend's name when I was little. The woman smiles. My name is Julie. It's a conversation you would have at some cocktail party. And I can't help but burst into tears. Julie places her hands gently on mine until I loosen my grip. She guides me up and out of the car, and I wobble like a calf. Julie holds me steady. I gotcha, she says in a sing-song tone. I believe her. She looks down at my body. You're bleeding. There is a thick line of blood oozing down my leg. Just like that. It's over. Julie can arrest me if she wants. But my body is mine. It's mine again.
Our second piece is by Dr. Kanwal Preet, who teaches political science in an undergraduate college in Chandigarh, India. Writing is a passion for Kanwal, and she delves into poetry as well as prose. She has written 12 books and is working on a few more. Her poems have been published in various international fora. The Heartless Drops by Kanwal Preet I saw a face disfigured, disfigured, disjointed, stare at me from a page that was black and white with sprayed alphabets, telling the sordid tale. I look the other way. My eyes fall on yet another twisted face, reflected from the glossy pages of a savvy magazine. The colourful pages of the favourite daily suddenly lost its sheen. The face smiled, but the smile was mysterious and left me a train of thought, leaving a deep vacuum. The face had once been normal. But what is normal? I could ignore the questions no longer. I flipped the pages to find some more faces, blotched, sewn together. An eye lost, a sunken cheek, a hole in place of an ear, hair totally singed. The skin at the neck, folded, crumpled and knitted. But the eyes spoke to the soul, narrating stories of defiance and that of revenge or rowdiness of a jilted lover, a humongous ego. An immature teen had not sprinkled deadly acid only on the body, but had torched the soul, playing havoc with the emotions as well as the identity of the girls who are now victims, victims of someone's lust jealousy, hatred, or greed. The impact shocks. The pain sears through the body, mind, and soul. Patriarchy stinks. A heavy price paid to enjoy liberty. The victims swallow in pain for a few days. Realization dawns. The crisis becomes one of survival. The whole life is an abyss. Do looks define life? And those looks are now marred, tainted and blotted, hidden from the world, from the light and the society. The victims get time to ponder. The predators might have hurt her body that now smarts for victory. The victims rise in full strength, rise from the ashes to build life anew, to narrate their stories of resilience and rebuttal. The victims become beacon lights for paving a way for many. The acid attack victims have risen. But I was left pondering at the sick mentality of the vicious predators. Where did they get the strength to throw the deadly liquid? To satiate their petty ego? How did the poisonous thought germinate in the mind? Did their hands not shake? Did their conscience not prick as they threw the pungent solution simply because they had defied their vicious predators. A simple no to a forced marriage, a stern no to flirting. These became valid reasons for the predators to wreak havoc in another's life. Strange are the ways of men who treat women as lumpen clods of clay. The hissing of acid as it touches the body is a proof of the feudal mindset as the desire to keep women as showpieces tucked in a fancy niche. Look into yourselves, 
all you people who believe the acid to be a solution to maintain hierarchy and to gain control on a woman's body and soul. The victims refuse to lie low. They rise emboldened, they rise in new avatars with radiant faces, beautiful smiles, and eyes that speak. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to stay up to date with the goings-on here at Yorick Radio, then you can follow us on our social media, sign up to our newsletter, check out our website, and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production.